Nehemiah 6. Now, just a recap of, of, of what's been going on. You know, Nehemiah had told uh, his people, the people of Israel that had gathered uh, back into uh, Jerusalem, in, into Judea to build the wall, that, uh, that God was going to bless them and the work of their hands. He told them that the good hand of God, the good hand of the Lord had been on them. And so it had. In chapter 1, do you remember the, the city was in ruins? And so what does Nehemiah do? He, he prays and he waits on God. And then in chapter 2, the good hand of the Lord was on Nehemiah. So the Persian king amazingly funds the return of Nehemiah and the exile and funds the building of the wall. He just out of the funds of Persia, here you go, go build the wall, go to the, go to the national forest, get some wood and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. In chapter 3, once they start the work, the people are united for the work. And each one of them finds their place on the wall to do the work. And God's work continues. And putting their, putting their hand to the work, God's good hand was on them. And then in chapter 4, God's hand was on them, helping them to make progress through external opposition. Remember, Senbala and Tobiah are, are coming at them, right? They're adding them on Twitter. They're like, come on. They're trying to intimidate them with, by mocking them. And so he, here they come. Here comes the external opposition. What's going to happen? God's good hand was on them. And then chapter 5, God's good hand was on them, even helping them through internal opposition. The people in Jerusalem, the time where they were there, ended up oppressing the, the poor, the, the, the rich, the landed people were oppressing the poor in the land. And, and now what was going to happen? Well, God's good hand was upon them. And Nehemiah ends chapter five by saying, remember me, O God, for the good work that I have done for this people. Now, how will God answer that prayer request? Remember me. For what I've done for this people. Chapter 6 is the answer to that prayer. Will God's good hand continue on them? Or will he withdraw it? The good hand of God had been on them. But why does Nehemiah suffer? One of the greatest attacks the enemy uses is suffering and fear. And you have suffered, haven't you? At some point in your life, maybe you're not suffering now. Maybe you've not suffered as much as other people, but you have suffered. Do you ever wonder why? Is this something Christians should expect to suffer? And do you ever wonder how you should respond when God ordains suffering slash discipline in your life? Every Christian suffers Friend, Jesus promised it. But what we're going to learn from Nehemiah is that not only should every Christian expect suffering, every Christian should expect the grace of God in their life. So you can live without fear. The kindness and mercy of God is the only thing to get you through the suffering. Every time Nehemiah has suffered and he will suffer personally in chapter six, every time he has suffered, God has seen him through the good hand of the Lord was on him. So chapter five ends. Nehemiah prays. How will God respond? 
Nehemiah 6, verse 1 through 9. Now when Sinbalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sinbalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner, in the same way. Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you... And the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This is God's word. So the wall is almost done. The signs of completion, they're, they're there and everyone knows it, including the surrounding areas. But when God doesn't work, Satan is often in the background trying to destroy it. And verse 1 reintroduces Satan's minions. I don't mean the cute yellow guys from Despicable Me. I mean his minions, his lackeys, the, the ones, his underlings. Every time T- Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are mentioned, every time they're mentioned, you should know that there's trouble on the horizon for Nehemiah. So these, these henchmen, these minions, they hear about the near completion of the work and they call for a meeting, just like they would do. They send that text. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Can we meet? Nothing else. So you're left to wonder, like, what, what are we meeting about? That's what they do. You, unlike most of us, though, Nehemiah doesn't ghost them, Right? Isn't that what you're tempted to do? You're just, just like, I'm not responding to this because it's making me too afraid. He responds to them. And, and he, you know, he says, I, I can't meet you guys. You guys want to meet like 25 miles away from Jerusalem. And he has already told them that they have, no, they have no business in what's going on in Jerusalem. They're outsiders. All they want to do is destroy God's work. God had given Nehemiah insight on their schemes. Now, friends, Satan has many devices to try and upset God's work and God's people. But God has given what Thomas Brooks calls precious remedies against Satan's devices. He he has given us remedies to fight off the ills of the evil one. He's given us weapons to fight the schemes of the devil. And so Nehemiah pulls out one of those remedies in order to fight off the schemes of the devil. And one of his schemes are distraction. One of his schemes is distraction. 
He, who wants to distract Nehemiah from this great work that, that Nehemiah has been called to by God. And so what is Nehemiah going to do in order to interact with this distraction, in order to defeat this distraction, in order to have a remedy against this device of Satan, of distraction? Well, the remedy is conviction. We, we don't know how Nehemiah came to his decision. Sometimes I read Nehemiah and I think, man, I, I wish I could be more like Nehemiah, right? Uh, you know, how did Nehemiah come to this decision? Was it based on his personality type? Was he just an Enneagram one, super decisive, right? And he's, he's like, I, I got this. There's no problem. I've already thought about this way in advance. I'm a leader. I'm a reformer. Here it is. Or did he contemplate? Did he take some time and say, I don't really know what to do. And I need to sit down and pray about this. Ultimately, we don't know. We don't know what Nehemiah was actually like. We don't know what his personality was actually like. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. Because the point is not to be like Nehemiah in personality, but in conviction. And here's the conviction. Verse 3, he understood the work was too great to be interrupted with pointless meetings. Everyone has experienced pointless meetings, haven't you? Every one of you in this room who has a job knows what a pointless meeting looks like. And Nehemiah had already told them in chapter 2, verse 20, and that they had no right or share or historic claim in Jerusalem. Now, Christians, and especially Christian leaders, you need to be wise. When, when, you're, not, when, when, when you're living in this life and, and things come up to distract you, we must be wise about giving time to matters that are not building up God's people and God's work, especially Christian leaders. You know, think about, think about this. Christian leader, if you're in a leadership position, about giving time to public or online debates. Now, sometimes that can be building up and protecting God's people. Sometimes it's just a distraction. Have you ever gone down the rabbit hole of engaging with a troll online? It oftentimes takes more time than is worth. God is calling us to be wise. What is the great work God has called you to is engaging in this thing online or whatever. It doesn't have to be online. This, this thing that you're, you're tempted to give time to, is it going to build up God's people and God's work? Christian, you must also be wise. Even if you're not a leader in, 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 of, of God's people, what has God called you to do? What, what has God called you? It's it's called the vocation. And all of us have several places where God has called us to, to live out a Christian life in, in different scenarios. Father, husband, mom, wife, student, teacher, son, daughter, neighbor. And what has God called you to in these many d different vocations? What, what has he called you to? We must think about these distractions in our life. What, is, what are the things that are distracting you most from fulfilling the vocation that God has called you to? Young men and women, what are you giving yourself to that is distracting you from the work God has called you to? And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, full-time Christian ministry is the only work that God, God has called us to all kinds of things. So if, you're, if you're like me, maybe 
You're tempted towards entertainment and ease, to be lazy. As God called you to something where the, where the laziness or the entertainment or the endless scrolling is distracting you. Maybe you just need to lock away your phone for two hours every night. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer is for you. Maybe you should read Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age by Tony Ranke. Maybe you read it with a group of friends and you think about what is distracting you. What, is, what are the competing spectacles and how can I treasure Christ alone? So the answer to distraction is conviction, friends. Conviction about the work God has called you to. He's called you to something more than endless scrolling or straight A's or a seven-figure income. He's called you to live without fear, live by conviction for the vocation he's called you to. The next device is slightly more sinister than distraction. The next device Satan uses is gossip and slander. You see that in verses 5 through 7. Gossip and slander by uh, Sanballat and Geshem through these letters are like that annoying call from Spam Likely. Do you know what I'm talking about? The one that comes over and over again trying to get you to renew the warranty on your car. That's what Nehemiah is experiencing from Sambala and Geshem. They send this letter four times, and, and he responds four times in the same way. I cannot come down from the important work God has called me to. And the fifth time they send an open letter, full of gossip and slander, trying to strike fear in the heart of Nehemiah. An open letter in Persia was a sign of contempt for the recipient. Normally, you would send a letter, you would roll it up, you would seal it with wax so no one could read it. An open letter was to say, I want you to know all the contents inside. It was a way of of spreading gossip and slander, and in Nehemiah's case, even endangering him to the king of Persia so that everyone knows his business. It was sort of a propaganda tool. It was the ancient Near Eastern version of a political smear campaign. I wish those uh, were different nowadays. Spreading gossip and lies is character assassination. And now Nehemiah's life was possibly in jeopardy. Just notice the contents of the letter in, in verses 5 through 7. These guys, these guys, these men, they, they, they tell Nehemiah that you are rebelling. It's untrue. They tell Nehemiah that he's setting himself up as king. That's a lie. They tell Nehemiah that he has set up prophets in the temple to legitimize his kingship. That's false. And, and, and lastly, they say, we're, we're going to go tell the king about it. Whatever. So Nehemiah's response in verses 8 through 9 shows us how a Christian can respond to slander and gossip most of the time. How, how do you respond Respond to distraction with conviction. You carry that conviction on into the next remedy against Satan's devices of gossip and slander. How should you respond? Well, notice these five points that I think Nehemiah teaches us. Consider, if you are slandered, if someone's gossiping about you, consider if what they say is true. Is what they say true or not? If it is not true, proceed to step two. Stay the course. 
This is what Nehemiah does. He essentially says, hand me another brick. I don't have time for these people. They're, they're, what they're doing is lying about me and gossiping about me. I don't have time for it. They're slandering me. They're, they're wanting to scare me and frighten me. Hand me another brick. Next, do not defend yourself. Nehemiah, we, we are not told that he goes to the king or sends a letter to the king telling him that he's not doing this or that he's afraid. You, you, friends, sometimes when you defend yourself, you legitimize the gossip. Sometimes you just have to stay quiet. Most of the time when you're attacked, just, just give it some time. It'll pass. Next, you don't only do not defend yourself. Sometimes you do defend yourself. Okay, I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule, but most of the time you don't. You just let it be. And you, you let time and truth tell out. The next thing you do is see it for what it is. That's what Nehemiah does. He calls them out. You guys are making this up out of your own imagination. All of these things are lies. Uh, and, and so he calls it out for what it is. He sees it for what it is. And then the last step, he prays. Stay humble. Check yourself. Stay the course. Hand me another brick. Don't defend yourself. Don't legitimize the gossip. See it for what it is and then pray. It's a short prayer. Strengthen my hands. Oh God, strengthen my hands for the work you've called me to do. They're trying to make Nehemiah afraid. The Satan is trying to make you afraid. He's trying to hold you back from fulfilling the vocation that God has called you to. Friends, if someone attacks you online, most of the time, all you have to do is give it two weeks. The truth will out. Time and truth are friends and time will reveal the truth. So just give it time and the truth will win. But the device is Satan wants you to believe that there is more danger of loss and suffering if you serve God. He wants you to believe that. If I serve God in this way, this is going to happen. Friends, consider this, as Thomas Brooks puts it. I'm paraphrasing. Consider with some seriousness that though you suffer troubles and afflictions, you will gain more in serving God by walking in righteous and holy ways than you could possibly suffer or lose by serving God. You, you will gain more. This, the scriptures bear that out. Have the testimony of the saints bear that out. For I consider that the suffering of this present time will not compare with the glory that is to be revealed. Time and truth are friends. Don't let Satan's remedies, don't let Satan's devices overcome you. Use God's remedies. The principle here, friends, is to fear God. The fear of God overcomes the fear of man. The fear of God has given Nehemiah wisdom and he's able to discern and see and read between the lines and see what's actually happening. Living in the fear of God is living in a relationship with him. Understanding him through his word, speaking to him in prayer and trusting him. When, when you do that, God is going to give you wisdom and biblical wisdom is competence with regard to the realities of life. In, in Nehemiah, it is insight into the precious remedies against Satan's devices. Friends, you can live without fear. 
by fearing God. Now, having seen that their intimidation and scare tactics will not work on Nehemiah, the enemy turns to Nehemiah's own people to plot his downfall. Number two, there's this plot of assassination and fear in verses 10 through 14. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his house, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is God's word. So in the second scene here, in this, these plots against Nehemiah, a new character comes into view. His name is Shemaiah. And we don't know much about him. There's not much character development. He, we know he's from Judah. We know he's a prophet. And we know he's a shut-in of some sort. And, and this prophet from Judah calls Nehemiah to meet. And Nehemiah goes and he meets him. But quickly discerns that he's a, a false prophet. Shemaiah conspired with Sanballat and Tobiah to entrap Nehemiah. One of God's own people. And they said Nehemiah was setting up prophets to legitimize himself as king. And now they send a prophet to entrap him in the temple, trying to make it seem as if Nehemiah was really setting himself up as king. But Nehemiah is not taken in by the ploy. He said, let's go to the temple and, and close the doors. They're coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They're, they're surely coming to kill you by night. And Shemaiah is, is paid to prophesy fear. And Nehemiah does not live In the fear of man. Nehemiah lives in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. And Nehemiah decides that he will not save his life at all costs. Nehemiah would not enter the temple for for several reasons. He he knows it's, it's a possibility of saving his life, but Nehemiah knows that if he disobeys God, he will actually end up losing his life. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's, he's a governor of the city, and, and, and he would have needed a reason to enter the temple. And there is a law in the Old Testament that if, uh, if a Jewish person uh, is coming to revenge a murder, that you could take asylum in the temple and, and not be killed. You would have a day in court. But that was not true of outsiders. You, if an outsider was trying to kill you, you couldn't take asylum in the temple. And secondly, Nehemiah knew that he was a eunuch and eunuchs, according to the law, were not allowed to enter the temple. Nehemiah knew that trying to save his life at the cost of obeying God or of disobeying God would cost him his life. 
If he wanted to save his life at all costs, he would lose it. This desire for safety and security. We've all felt it in the last two years, haven't we? Our, our society and, and even we ourselves, our uh, safety and security means a lot. Do you know this place that we live in, Corvallis? Some people call the Shire, right? Because it's so safe. Nothing ever, nothing ever bad happens in the Shire except, you know, uh, bike theft. <laughs> and, and, and if we're being duped by Satan's devices, we can think that safety and security is the only thing or the most important thing that matters. It does matter. But for, for Nehemiah, he tells us that his safety and security would not come at the cost of disobeying God. And now, you know, his reputation matters. And, and they're trying to, he tells us in, in these verses, that they're trying to make me afraid so that I would sin and that he'd give me a bad name. And his reputation matters because his reputation is tied to God's work. And so now he does defend himself. They wanted, to have a, they wanted him to have a bad reputation so they could discredit him as governor and God's work would stop. And again, if only political smear campaigns were better nowadays. But Nehemiah takes it all again, verse 14, to God in prayer. Verse 14, he asks God to remember. Remember these men, what they have done to him and, and to God's work and defaming God's name. And, and this isn't the first time, but it is an important time. God, Nehemiah has called God to remember. Do you remember in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? Nehemiah has called God to remember his command to Moses. He said, if, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me... And carefully observe my commands. Even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose to have my name dwell. Nehemiah's prayer for him, for God to remember Sinbalat and Geshem and Tobiah, remember that the evil they had done, was a prayer that God would, would keep his covenant promise, that it was a prayer in line with the covenant promise of God. They had returned to God. And God had returned them to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild and do his work. And what these politicians and prophets and prophetesses were doing was exactly the opposite of God's will. Nehemiah is not seeking revenge like a John Wick movie. He's asking God to remain faithful to the covenant, to his covenant promises, and, and not let anything or anyone stand in the way of that. And friends, this, is, this leads us to the last plot in the great reversal. Verses 15 through 19. So the wall was finished in 50, 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, 
the son of Ara, and his son Jehananan had taken the daughter of Meshulan, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. God's word. So the wall is finished in an astonishing 52 days, less than two months. Now, this is a sign of really good leadership, but a sign especially that the good hand of God had been upon them. In verses 15 and 16, it tells us about this great reversal in the fortunes of, of both Israel and the, uh, Nehemiah and the enemy. And the ironic and sweet twist to the story is that when the wall was built and when the enemies had heard of all of this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated. Now, this is exactly what they were trying to do to Nehemiah, trying to make him afraid, trying to make him afraid. Intimidation by mocking him, by, by, by plotting what looked like assassination attempts. And now the wall is built. They know God has done it. And Nehemiah's prayer is answered. They are intimidated. They, they, they see what God has done. What they tried to do to Nehemiah has been turned on their own head and has happened to them. They were intimidated. They lost their confidence for they realized that God had accomplished all of this. They realized this was not finally Nehemiah's doing. It was God's own doing. This was one of the great reversals of all time. One of the greatest stories ever told is this reversal of of God's enemies trying to take down God's people and God's work and it being reversed and turned on their head. It's one of the greatest, but not the greatest. The greatest reversal of all time happened when a great leader, a greater leader than Nehemiah came to earth wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He, he lives a life of suffering, this one they called Jesus of Nazareth. He identified with those he had created, but those who had sinned against him and, and rebelled against him. He came and identified with them and lived a life of suffering with them and for them. Friends, he left, Jesus left the greater court, a greater court than the courts of Persia. He left the courts of heaven to dwell with us, sinful though we are. He was despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And friends, he didn't just live under the threat or fear of death. He suffered the most horrific death on a cross in our place, taking our curse. What his death accomplished was much more than building a wall around Jerusalem. His death saved the people by breaking down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. It's the greatest reversal of all time. He died. But three days later, he got up from the dead. He stepped out of the tomb, reversing death's curse. Death itself started to work backwards. For all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness, that just means you you understand you're a sinner and you know who to go to 
to get forgiveness. It's, it's God through Jesus. For all who do that, for all who trust in Christ, death is working backwards. The work has been accomplished by God himself. So friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I encourage you. If you've never repented of your sins and, and turned to him, I, I encourage you, turn to Christ alone. Just go to him in prayer, even right now, and, and ask him to forgive you if you're convicted of your sin. If you want to have more conversations about that, I, I would love to talk to you. There are other people in this congregation that would love to talk to you and share the gospel with you and, and tell you how you can have the great reversal happen to you. You who are on your way to death and destruction can be turned to everlasting life. You may be saying, friend, you know, I Doug, I believe everything you're saying is true. I'm trusting Christ alone for my salvation from sin and death. How am I supposed to be, continue? How am I supposed to think about the continued attacks and fear? There's this great reversal that happens to Nehemiah, a great reversal that happens to you, and yet you still feel the continued attacks of, of fear and suffering and loss, don't you? Tobiah continues his attacks in verses 17 through 19. And Tobiah is not just an enemy of Judah. He is also highly influential in Judah. He's married into this, into this clan. He is married into the family, as it were, and is making life miserable for Nehemiah. And Tobiah was related to the, the nobles of Judah, and they were in contact, and they were sending letters back and forth, and, and, and these nobles were telling Nehemiah how great of a dude ne- uh, Tobiah was, and, and, and they were reporting all that Nehemiah said back to Tobiah. But friends, Tobiah was a toothless tiger. Tobiah had no credit. His letters of intimidation to Nehemiah, he had letters of intimidation to Nehemiah, but the battle had been won. The wall was built and it was God who had done it. Friends, the attacks of the, of the devil, of the evil one, are attacks of a toothless, declawed tiger. They are scary and fearful, but they cannot finally hurt you. You may even die But you will not die twice. You will not die finally. You will live forever if you're trusting in Christ alone, the greater Nehemiah, for this great reversal that he has accomplished, reversing the curse of death. So what can you meditate on this week, dear friend, to help you remember that the battle has been won and you do not need to fear? What can you meditate on? Take some time to think about that this week. What portion of scripture can I meditate on? What doctrine of, uh, of, the, of salvation can I meditate on to think about how these attacks are, are finally toothless and will not hurt me? A couple places to think about are, are Romans 8 or, or, or the book of Revelation, especially towards the end. Friends, in the face of distraction, slander, and gossip, In the face of slander, distraction, slander, and gossip, we had the conviction, Nehemiah had the conviction that God has called him to something, and that work is greater. He will, he will not, 
He will not condemn you. He will, he will not come down from this work that he has started. He, he, he will continue. Nehemiah will continue, and so shall you. So pray. In the face of assassination attempts and fear, we will remember and ask God to remember to keep his covenant. In the face of, in the face of, uh, of suffering and loss and in the Christian life, we remember that the great reversal happened at the cross. The great reversal has happened to us. And, 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 and though we suffer and fear and, and lose, we will not finally lose our lives because Jesus Christ has saved them. So, dear friend, let us remember. Let's not live in, in fear. Let's live in the fear of God and, and turn to him and his great reversal for our, our our life and our faith and our Christian walk. Father, now we ask that you would use these words from Nehemiah to heal us. God, help us to, to not be faithless, not to, not to live in, in fear, but to live in the confidence that you have reversed the curse that you, you yourself have, have done what is necessary to, to take on the, the, the distraction, the slander, the gossip, the assassination, the fear in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as he rose from the dead, we would, we would rise to, to live new lives of, uh, of faithfulness. And grant us, O oh, oh God, to see you in this great reversal of our fortunes. In Christ's name, amen. Now, dear friends, um, we are going to turn to communion, the, the Lord's table before us. And this is a meal uh, that represents something. The, the very... Uh, body of Jesus Christ was was given for us, so that in the in the reversal of of death, uh, we we remember that it costs something. It costs Jesus His own life, and, and and we remember in the cup that it 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 cost Him His blood. He he died. He His body was broken, and and He gave up His life for us. And, and these remind us how we came in to the faith. Through, through taking Jesus to ourselves, through believing him. And, and, and so we don't believe that the, the supper can save you, the, that communion can save you, has no saving effect on itself, but it, it does unite us together. It points us towards, towards Jesus who, who has given his life for us. So we invite you, if you're a Christian and if you've, you've been baptized, to, to come and take communion and, 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 and sup together with us, remembering the great reversal that has been accomplished because of the death of Jesus Christ. So we're going to stand together and sing a song. And, and then I just invite you to, to come down, get communion if you're communing with us, and then go back to your seats and we'll take it together and we'll sing one last song. Um, so welcome.